0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Nightlife. News breakdown.
1: While well, reports of friction between the Defence Minister Richard Miles and the top brass in both the ADF and the Defence Department have emerged, in the Financial Review, Andrew Tillett, who's the defence correspondent for the Masthead, reported today that the tensions have been fueled by the military's demands for new weaponry being met with the government's reluctance and inability to deliver immediate funding boosts. The article quotes a senior bureaucrat saying the minister, quote, doesn't respect them and they sure as hell don't respect him. Okay, the federal opposition's picked up on the tensions with Shadow Defence Minister Andrew Hastie, accusing the government of sitting on a review of Australia's naval capabilities, which the opposition claims is unsettling the shipbuilding states of South Australia and western australia. I think the problem is that there's a lot of paperwork sitting on Richard Miles's desk. Um, the surface fleet review is yet to be handed down and he's causing chaos and uncertainty within his department and he's causing chaos and uncertainty within the respective jurisdictions which will be impacted by this decision namely south australia and western australia. Well for his part the defence minister has conceded his department must do better and has got work to do before it achieves a quote culture of excellence. The Albanese government's been frustrated over recent months with senior military leaders because of delays to various projects. Questioned in Parliament about his relationships with the ADF, the minister said he makes no apologies for demanding better performance. There is a way to go before we have that culture of excellence in the Department of Defence and the Australian Defence Force. Order. But having said that, I have some sympathy for where defence is at because the issues around culture in defence today are a result of the 10-year tenure from those opposite. Well, I guess he would say that, wouldn't he? Uh, Mark Kenny, the Canberra Times political analyst and professor at the uh, Australian Studies Institute, joins us for Nightlife News Breakdown. Mark, good evening. Welcome back to Nightlife.
0: Thank you, Philip. Good evening to you.
1: Well, not an easy time, I guess, to be defence minister or military chief, for that matter, is, is it?
0: No, but is it ever really? I mean, yes, the world is in a very unstable place. We know the security environment has probably never been more challenging nor more complex. So, you know, there are multiple things that need to be done. But, you know, defence, the portfolio of defence has been pretty much a graveyard for uh, for ministers for a long time. There's Mm. been a relatively high turnover of them. It deals in huge... Uh, huge contracts, huge acquisitions, huge decisions with sort of massive timeframes. Most of them, almost all of them, run late, over budget, underperform. Correct. Ministers have ministers have con- ongoing conflicts with the uniformed services. You know, there's the Department of Defence as well. There are other agencies. There's a lot of private sector investment and, and, um, contracts being let. There's a lot of, uh, yeah, sort of geographical political interest, uh, as we heard from Andrew Hasty there, you know, spruking the interests of South Australia and particularly his state of WA. Uh, those things always intervene in it as well. So, you know, it's a, it's an area where, I mean, I sort of almost laughed when I heard, uh, Richard Miles, the Defence Minister, talking in the House about uh, having some way to go to a culture of excellence. I think we'd be we'd settle for a culture of competence <laughs> you know What about
1: one project one time yeah. on time on budget, just one
0: just yeah that's one. right and 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 being delivered early, perhaps that would be good, oh, you know no,
1: no. well we're not asking impossible. Mm. I mean, it, it's true that, look, the recent environment, defence environment has, has changed a lot of understandings, hasn't it? The war in Ukraine has certainly reset a lot of understandings about what sort of weapons work. Uh, yeah. And there are, you know, tensions in the build-up with the, with the Chinese, of course. The government didn't refuse to send RAN ships into the Red Sea. Suggestions that they thought, the government thought, they might be lacking necessary defences against drone attacks. Maybe that's right.
0: Look, it probably is right because uh, drone attacks, drone warfare, is in in a sense, you know, it's the it's, it's, the new. it's thing. new, it's new, <laughs> it's new, it's the coming thing, and it's the coming thing for us, and we need to be thinking about that. And I see that in uh, Andrew Tillett's excellent reporting there, uh, there are some tensions about uh, some of the things that Navy has been pursuing. Um, that uh, that um, you know other defense strategic planners and assessments have suggested would be you know services better provided by swarming drones, for example, because that is the sort of warfare of today and particularly of tomorrow un unstaffed or unmanned uh, drones and uh, you know maneuverable and expendable and capable mm. of inflicting damage, and we see that happening in the Persian Gulf. Uh, um, in the Red Sea, uh, you know, in this, in these, you know, times now. So, yeah, I mean, look, you know, I, I, as I say, I'm not massively surprised to see this. I think it's interesting that there is uh, obvious tension existing between um, uh, the, the Richard Miles, the Defence Minister, and Greg Murray. Well, as reported, Greg Moriarty, the Secretary of the Department of Defence, and Angus Campbell, the Chief of Defence Forces, whose term. Incidentally, is due to end mid-year, so there's a, you know there's also planning going on for who replaces him. But you know the the, the services themselves are, are always competing for their share of budget, and in those competitions, in those arguments, are embedded. Quite significant philosophical and doctrinal differences about warfare, about how wars ought to be fought, and about um, what you know what is the nature of the threat. So you've got problems within those services, and then you've got problems in their you know sort of endless jealousy or envy uh, in in competition with each mm-hmm. other. And, um, yeah, it's it's yeah, I know it's the, never all really that
1: easy. Andrew Tillett's article in the Finn Review quotes one senior defence official uh, saying the department and the minister have one thing in common, quote mutual non-performance. Yeah, it's okay. one of those
0: uh, like no. that great uh, sort of uh, reduction. You know, they they don't like each other. They they think each other are hopeless, and they're both right. Mm. Uh,
1: <laughs> the opposition also been asking uh, other questions about defence force decisions, and this is one that many non-military Australians might be wondering too. That is why the government didn't send the grounded fleet of Taipan helicopters to Ukraine. The Ukraine the Ukrainians said they wanted them. I mean, Australia grounded them after the crash recently which killed uh, service personnel on board. The ADF's now pulling them apart, using the spares and burying the rest apparently. Army veterans and engineers were volunteering to rebuild the aircraft so they could be sent to Ukraine. Uh, Andrew Hastie, the opposition spokesperson on this says he questions the logic of all this. Who is running Australia's defence and foreign policy? Is it Penny Wong and Richard Miles and the Prime Minister? Or is it the Defence Department? I'm concerned that the the Defence Department is taking decisions without um, authorisation from the Defence Minister. And uh, Richard Miles should explain why he didn't have the option to send those taipans. Well, I mean, he doesn't know either, I mean, in all honesty. But still, it does does beg the question, if the Ukrainians wanted them and we're just going to bury them in the ground, why did we didn't give them to the Ukrainians?
0: Yeah, I think it does and I think a lot of Australians have had questions about this since this story emerged some weeks ago um, and the the rationale that's been provided by the government and by uh, the defence forces have... Um, uh well they've been convincing to some people and they, they haven't satisfied others and i think when you've got um ex-air force people um you know ex uniformed services people volunteering to make them airworthy to uh, undertake whatever maintenance needs to be done on them uh, and uh, preparing them to be mm-hmm. shipped to ukraine i mean that sounds on the face of it pretty convincing to me I, and, and you know If I had to say what I think about it, and I I hasten to add I I don't have the technical expertise to sort of form a judgment that anyone should place too much store in, but my instinct about this is that defence just didn't want to do it uh, and um, I can't see why we couldn't have done that. I mean, getting materiel and equipment uh, to Ukraine has been... The preoccupation of of Western countries since this appalling territorial war began, when Russia invaded over two years ago, and um, the, uh, the the idea that we might actually have some equipment that they could use that we've decided we're going to uh, we're going to bench um, the idea that we would withhold that on what seemed to be pretty technical grounds. Uh, I think is, um, you know, prima facie it's disappointing. But like I say, I, I, I just don't have enough information or expertise uh, to really evaluate
1: that. No, look. Speaking of preparations for a possible war, I'm speaking with Mark Kenny, by the way, from the Australian Studies Institute of the ANU for Nightlife News breakdown. Speaking of preparations for possible war, might be bef- over before a shot is fired if you believe people who say cyber attacks are the thing with modern warfare spy agencies are warning chinese hackers are preparing destructive cyber attacks we have heard this sort of thing before although in the ukraine war it doesn't look as though it was as bad as people have sometimes suggested but still as uh, beijing backed hackers have already breached apparently multiple infrastructure networks in the united states that makes australia vulnerable and apparently the five eyes partners this is the intelligence uh, partners of you know U.S., Australia, U.K., New Zealand, and so on. They're they're apparently worried.
0: I think this has been an ongoing worry, and it's probably a worry that's going to keep getting worse mm. um, because it is, uh, as you say, I mean we talked about drones before, and drones would be used with um, with in conjunction with uh, the you know the digital technology that is is just advancing so quickly. Um, in both in terms of their design and in terms of the the, the, the possibilities for uh, their navigation and flying and so forth, um, but you know this this uh, hacking of vital infrastructure, the, the use of uh, digital hacking technology by bad actors, by, by by rogue states or states that are using it for um, uh, you know, what, what, as you say, what would effectively be warfare without firing a shot. This potential exists, and it is a great worry for. Uh, for the Five Eyes. And we've seen this before, as you say, we've seen the, the, um, the various instruments of, uh, of Australian security, including things like the Australian Signals Directorate, which is the one we're talking about here, mm. raising these concerns before and raising them sometimes in concert with, with the Americans and other members of the Five Eyes network. It's not going to go away. And what I think is interesting about this, Philip, is that, you know, when we think about, um, the the death sentence handed out to uh, Yang Hongjun, uh, we we think about um, the uh, these these sorts of ongoing concerns that that Australia has about uh, the behaviour of China or Chinese agencies or or other countries as well who who would do Australia in the West harm. Uh, it, it really does go to how complicated this relationship is. You know, there's been an improvement in the bilateral relationship between Australia and China, but there are fundamental things about the relationship which are uh, incredibly difficult and, 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 and place enormous strains on the relationship as well, and this is obviously one of them. Um, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see how we sort of balance those things and whether there is any any prospect for for any sort of improvement i mean i've seen talk for example recently of of there being some attempt some ideal attempt it sounds sort of fantasy almost but of trying to get some level of detente some level of ongoing understanding between the us and china to dial down some of this uh, this tension this 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 competition which is mm. defining really everything. And that really probably is the only answer, but whether it's whether it's possible or not, I think, is another thing entirely.
1: Mm. Indeed. All right, look, a set of changes to, or a number of changes to industrial relations laws set to pass Parliament. Government and, uh, The government secured support from the Greens and the crossbench Senators Lydia Thorpe and David Pocock uh, to pass the IR laws. The changes will give employees the right to ignore out of our hours calls, the so-called right to disconnect, Uh, and it will enable minimum standards for gig workers too, like uh, rideshare drivers. Tony Burke, the uh, employment minister, said it was a good day for casual and gig workers. It makes a palpable difference for workers who have had no minimum standards that they now will have some. Gig workers have had, when you say, "Oh, what's the minimum wage for a gig worker? There is none until this bill goes through. Yes, uh, Greens leader Adam Bant says the right to disconnect from work is needed to reflect the changing nature of workplaces and expectations. We've had these massive advances in technology, but with that many times has come a bit of unreasonable expectation that just because you can, you can be contacted 24-7 that you um, should be available to be by your employer even if you don't get paid for it um, or even if there's no time off or there's no other kind of compensation. As a journalist, you'd, uh, you'd love the right to disconnect, wouldn't you, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that's what, yes. that's what you need. I mean, the news editor can't ring you at uh, 10 o'clock at night and say, where's the copy? Can't ring yeah, you and say, hang on, you've just filed this copy. What's this rubbish in the second paragraph Yes,
0: precisely. You've nailed it completely, actually, Philip, as a, a bit of experience speaking there, I'm sure. Um, but yes, it's the anxiety that one feels after you've filed the story. And <laughs> you just think, oh, fine you know, you've put every single bit of your energy into it. The last thing you want is for the phone to ring 20 minutes later and have to do some further edits. But um yeah, look, it it is the problem, isn't it? The world has changed. The relationship with work has changed. We saw a bit of this through through the the COVID lockdown, and um, you know what seemed like an advantage at first of of people for some anyway, for those people who were able to mm. to be able to continue their work but do it from home. And what people started to find, I mean, some people were were better off and loved it, but many people noted that they they were ending up sort of working longer, or or they may not have been more productive hour to hour but they just ended up doing more hours of work because the workplace and the home had become one and although always- you know,
1: in truth though in truth I don't know if there's a trade off here I think I mean my experience with it and I you know I think working from home's fine if you can but uh you know, the truth is people do not sit at their desks all day at home. That's that's the attraction of working at home. It means you can nip off and pick up the kids and come back and get stuck mm-hmm. into it again. I mean, that's the whole point. So you might say yes. there's a degree of flexibility required here. And just because your hours of work are nine to five, at home you might be more, way more flexible with it. And shouldn't that mean the boss you know, is allowed to contact you outside of this. Well, I mean,
0: mean, you know, that's probably true. And I think what we're going to see in this uh, is that it will be a more pragmatic approach in many cases. Hmm. The point about these protections really is, uh, I think, to update the laws so that They reflect the way people are working. Now, in many cases, we're not talking about people who are working from home. We're talking about people who go home, say, and uh, are then contacted later to do this or that or about their shifts tomorrow or to be called, you know, can you come in two hours early because we've got a delivery that's coming or whatever it is. Uh, Many, many times these are people who are on minimum wage or or on average weekly earnings you know they're they're, they're not exactly um, right. uh, sort of wealthy and powerful people in the economy uh, and they don't have a lot of labor market power so they either do that or they lose their job to someone who is prepared to do it and what these laws are, are about doing is in those circumstances rebalancing giving them some power and giving and and recognizing that if you're getting paid what what are essentially not high wages uh, for your you know hourly um, hourly work either as a casual or as a part time or whatever it is um, that when you're not there you're not there uh, except in uh, except in sort of exceptional circumstances uh, and I think what will probably happen here is that for many people who don't mind that kind of thing that sort of uh, arrangement will continue it's mm. It's the ones who, uh, you know, the bad bosses uh, who just harass people and send them emails at, you know, all hours of the night and expect those people to be responding to them quite quickly, um, even though they're not really being paid to be at work anymore. They've been at work all day, for example. You know, it's about rebalancing that, and 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 so there, let's say, let's face it, there are millions and millions of employment relationships in the economy at any one time. I don't think these laws are going to transform all of those at once, but I think they will give some employees uh, the right to be able to complain and take some sort of corrective action and stand up for their rights.
1: There you go. All right. Mm. Uh, Mark, always great to talk Uh, indeed. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you very much, Philip.